Most of you have already felt the pains uh, in your communities of, uh, uh, we can't use the word recession, but we certainly know uh, what is happening to our people uh, back home. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. Today is Wednesday, October 29th. It's about 4.14 p.m. here in New York City. I'm Laura Conaway. Adam Davidson is out in the field reporting again. We are working on a major, major project. It's very cool. I can't wait to tell you all about it when it's ready next week, I think. Later on in the show today, we're going to take on a very tough, for me, a very tough listener question. For now, today's news. That was New York Congressman Charles Rangel you just heard. He was talking finance and economics with governors on Capitol Hill today. We're hearing that the federal government is working on a plan to save homeowners from foreclosure. We don't have many hard details yet. The idea, maybe, is to rework mortgages so that people pay according to their incomes. This reminds me of some of my student loans, actually. And in the news, we know we know the Federal Reserve lopped half a point of the benchmark interest rate today. That is the second cut in three weeks. The rate is now down to 1%. People have been saying the stock market would react to another announcement like that. So for our Planet Money Indicator today, we're going to turn to Vinnie Catalano. He's the president of the investment firm Blue Marble Research. Vinny, how's the market? Uh, the market actually is looking more promising. Uh, it remains, you know, fairly volatile, but uh, for a number of reasons that I've uh, listed up on my blog today, uh, there are calendar-related items, market-related items, and, uh, and valuation-related items that say, you know, stocks, uh, I think, can go another 10 to 15% higher from here, which would be kind of cheery news. How did they close out today? Uh, the S&P was down, but the broad market overall, I believe, was up. The S&P overall ended up being down 10. Uh, I 10%? actually look at that more than I look at, like, the Dow Jones. But there were wait, wait, stocks up for every three that went down. Fanny, do you mean 10, 10 points or 10%? 10 points. Percent would be huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was yesterday. <laughs> so, no, not much of a move today. So no particular reaction to the cut in interest rates? No, not at all. No, uh, very limited because I think what the Fed did was come out with pretty much what everybody thought that they were going to do, which is cut rates about a half a percent, say that the economy is a little bit shaky, that they're concerned about a recession. The one piece of good news that was in there is that they're, they are far less concerned about inflation uh, because of commodity prices being down and because of the economy slowing down. So, you know, bad news sometimes can produce a little bit of good news, and that's what you got with the inflation side of the equation. Vinny Catalano, thank you. Thank you. Take care out there. That was Vinny Catalano of Blue Marble Research. We'll link to his blog on ours at npr.org slash money. And we're moving on. Adam noticed today, he sent an email from the field. He said a big deal historian was due into the studio. He was not here to talk to us. He was here to talk to higher, greater luminaries at NPR. The historian's name is John Steele Gordon. He specializes in finance and economics. I asked him about today's cut. What kind of territory are we in when we get to 1%, historically speaking? Well, it's gone lower. 
Um, it was down to half a percent um, in right after um, September 11th, or in the aftermath of September 11th. Uh, but that's getting, you know, you can't make a negative interest rate. And so you're beginning to run out of room um, to influence the system with interest rate cuts because, I mean, you can't, you know, tell banks to pay folks to take the money. <laughs> what, during the Depression, what were interest rates like? Well, the Fed actually kept interest rates quite high in the early days of the Depression, and that was one of the great um, causes of turning an ordinary recession into the Great Depression. Uh, the Federal Reserve was basically leaderless um, after Benjamin Strong died in 1928. He had been the governor of the New York Fed, and the rest of the Federal Reserve system had taken its cue from him, but he died. And at that point, they were fighting inflation, and so they were raising interest rates, and interest rates were about 5% in, in 1929. After the crash, they should have immediately reduced the interest rates. They should have flooded the street with liquidity, and instead they, um, they kept it high because they basically didn't know what to do. Could you define liquidity for me? Liquidity is money. Um, the, the more easily you can sell something, the more liquid it is. And real estate is notoriously the most illiquid of investments uh, because each piece of real estate is unique and you have to find a buyer who wants that particular piece of real estate at a price he's willing to pay. Um, other things are more easily um, converted into money. And money, of course, is the most easily – you can always buy something with money. Um, and so liquidity is when it's when it's liquidity is is hard to come by when people are trying to get into money when they're trying to sell other assets. Um, in a crash, for instance, there um, what you have is everybody are selling stock to, at any price in order just to get the money. So when the Federal Reserve lowers the rate, is it trying to add liquidity to the system? It's no. In this case, what they're trying to do is um, make it easier for people to borrow. And so more likely to do so. I mean, they're trying to lower the cost of, of, of borrowing. Is this tied in any way to the consumer confidence numbers we saw yesterday? I, I talked to a fellow, Ken Goldstein, who was saying that the numbers, the consumer confidence number is the lowest it's been in 35 years since they started the survey. Yes. I mean, they want to do is prevent um, people from becoming overly cautious. They want to, you know, the moment – you know, there's an old saying on Wall Street that there are only two emotions when it comes to money, um, greed and fear. And at the moment, um, people are saying it's a good time to put in a, a good word for greed. <laughs> you know, we had an economist, Simon Johnson of Baseline Scenario, advise a listener yesterday who said he basically stopped spending money. And I have to say, I'm in this camp. And Simon Johnson's advice was, please buy a little something. Yes. Um, the world is not coming to an end. Um, I mean, we're in a serious financial situation, but um, the governments of the world are beginning to get a handle on it, it would appear. Uh, credit is beginning to unfreeze. I expect that in, in six months or a year, things will have settled down. It's probably going to take longer than that to get back to a new um, growth cycle. Um, but it's not the end of the world, and we don't have to start planting potatoes in the backyard. Now, we're not in, we're not trying to encourage irresponsible borrowing. The Fed is trying to um, in, encourage responsible borrowing. I mean, if you have a 10-year-old car and it's costing you a lot of money to maintain it, um, maybe it's time to go out and buy that new car that you've been planning to do. And suddenly with all this um, financial hullabaloo, you're saying, oh, maybe not. I'll wait another year. And they're saying, no, don't. Um, it's time to go out and buy that car. So a drop... 
is that the kind of move that makes it easier to buy a house, but not necessarily easier to buy a flat screen TV with a credit card? Yes, it'll help you with the house. It will not help you with the flat screen TV or the Caribbean vacation um, put on your credit card because credit card um, interest rates are way higher than that. Um, and the, the Fed has very little influence on those interest rates. And that's what you mean when you say they're trying to encourage responsible borrowing? Yes. Can you explain to our audience, please, why it is that when interest rates go down, stocks tend to go up? What's the connection? Well, as interest rates go down, bonds become less attractive. Uh, because, because bonds are loans. Well, a bond is a loan, yes. Um, when you buy a bond, you're loaning that corporation or that government, um, treasury bonds, um, money, and they pay you interest on that money. Um, as the interest rates go down, the um, people are less willing to buy bonds um, because they're getting less money in return, and so they're more interested in buying stocks, which have a chance of appreciating as well as paying dividends. I mean, there's some stocks now, I mean, of, you know, good, solid companies uh, whose dividends are paying 5 6%, uh, whereas Treasury bonds right now are paying um, around 36 and change, if I remember correctly. If we, if, you, if we can't look to the Great Depression for ideas about what's happening now, where else in history could we look to try to understand the state of this economy and how to fix it? Well, there's, the, the Great Depression is not a very good analogy to the current situation. Um, there are cases the, the, as to how we got into this mess. Uh, the SNL crisis of the 1980s is a, is a good example uh, in which the federal government and state governments tried to help um, savings and loan institutions rather than forcing them to merge or go out of business or become full-service banks. Um, they tried to save what was unsavable, and it ended up being very expensive. Um, that's what we did in, in, in this case. Um, we tried to um, provide loans to people to buy houses who were basically uncreditworthy and couldn't pay back the loan. They had you know, no down payment loans, and, which meant that if the loan would be instantly underwater if housing prices um, declined. And it also it gave the borrower no skin in the game. He had no down payment. He had nothing to lose. So he moves into the house, lives there for a year, gets foreclosed upon, and walks away. He walks away. Big deal. Um, it was a disastrous idea, but you know these kind of disastrous ideas are often seen in retrospect more clearly than in um, in foresight. So are we watching 1987 all over again in the sense that we're having to pick winners and losers here? You know, banking is a very peculiar business. Um, it's in the money business. And if, you know, if a, if a shoe factory goes out of business, well, somebody else will manufacture the shoes. But if the banking system collapses, then the entire economy collapses with it. And therefore, I mean, banks, big banks are quite literally too big to fail because if they did, then the whole system would crash in ruins along with them. And, you know, everybody would be poor. Now, what they're doing now is they're injecting capital into the banks in order partly to encourage um, lending because your amount of capital determines how much money you can lend, um, and also just to stabilize them. And then in a few years, when they have stabilized, then they, the, these banks are being expected to buy back that um, preferred stock that they have sold to the government. And hopefully the government will make a buck on the process. A lot of people have been asking about this idea that, that the government is, is putting capital into banks in the hopes that the banks will lend, and yet some of the banks aren't necessarily lending that money back out? 
at the moment that that um but it's very recently that they got the money i mean they you know you can't get an infusion of 25 billion dollars and and lend out 250 billion dollars by you know the following saturday it's not a hot dog stand it's not a hot dog stand yeah so you say hang on a minute you think they will i i think they will they are under tremendous pressure to do so i mean the the white house yesterday um suggested very strongly that they do exactly that i think they may be listening now i think they're listening Thanks to John Gordon for taking a few extra minutes to explain the world to us here on Planet Money. One of the things we like to do on Planet Money is take your questions, and I mean not just take them, but answer them. Even when we, or maybe in this case just I, am starting from scratch. So here's one from Sean Flynn of Chicago, who said he'd recently read this confusing article. Yeah, it was uh, about something called a yen carry, where... I guess people were borrowing Japanese money on the cheap and then converting it to some other type of currency and that gave them more money in return and then so anyway there was some type of scheme that I didn't quite understand but it made people out of quick money and I was hoping I could understand it better it seemed like the kind of schemes that have been backfiring for people lately And what do you think it's called A yen carry as I- in the money the yen and I'm not sure why they mean carry, but carrying like carrying a backpack or something like that. The yen carry. I think I've also seen yen carry trade. Yes. Which is what the, I guess the whole thing would be. Yes. I think they're trading. Yeah, it's kind of like a derivative. Not that I, I know anything about derivatives, but it seems like something where uh, they were um, concocted the scheme where they carry the yen and trade these things behind we need to ask somebody, Sean. Yes. <laughs> we're we're going to ask somebody. I need help. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Meg Brown, what is it? Why should we care? Okay. I'll talk about what it is first. Uh, it's a trade where you borrow in yen uh, and invest somewhere else, hoping to make a better return than you than what you're paying out. Uh, the The reason is it's called a yen carry trade. You borrow in yen. Uh, yen rates have been very low uh, for for some time. I, I'm talking at the moment about uh, half a percent that you have to pay to borrow money in Japan, and that money has been invested in countries like Australia or New Zealand that have much higher rates, say eight uh, percent. So, if currency markets weren't involved, you would hope to earn a return of about seven and a half percent on that over the course of a year. The yen carry trade isn't the only kind of trade out there. There's also carry trades involving, say, borrowing in U.S. dollars and investing in the same currency, but also you can invest in Brazil, for example, where yields are 13 14%. Can I back up? Mm-hmm. I, 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 need, I need to back up and, and, and do this in, in my own silly layman's terms because I want to make sure I understand. So I'm an American, and let's say I have $1,000 sitting around, and I'm going to do something with that $1,000. And I decide that I'm going to do a yen carry trade. So I take my $1,000, and I go to a money broker. Am I on the right track? Um, actually, an individual could certainly do this, but you could do it, what if you did it in U.S. dollars? But I wanted... Because you've already got the... Whoops. You've already got the money. I've got the thousand dollars, but I need I need to borrow in yen, right? I need to make a I need to borrow some money from Japan, basically. Somebody right. in Japan. 
Is that right? Right. Yes, I got part of it right. Okay, so I go to a Japanese bank.、Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, you could go to any bank. Okay, and I say to them, I want to borrow a thousand Japanese yen. Do you want to borrow a thousand dollars worth of yen? Okay, and they're gonna they they hand them to me in a big sack. <laughs> They'll put it in an account. Yes. Okay. So, but I but I know something smart to do with those yen, and that is to invest it someplace like Australia. Right now, how do I actually invest it in Australia? Am I buying stocks? Am I loaning it? Am I buying a bond? Bonds or、uh, some form of interest-bearing account. Okay, and the reason I'm doing that is because Japanese banks right now are charging very low interest rates on the yen. Right. Yes, I, you can't know how excited I am to get this. Okay, <laughs> and in Australia, bonds are going for a high rate of return. Right. This is all hypothetical because the world is just tilted on its axis. But yes. Okay. So let we're going to stand the world up on its axis for just a second. So I so I make I borrow a thousand dollars in yen. I got to pay some interest on it. But then I turn around and I buy a bond, which is I make a loan to some government entity in Australia or to an Australian company that's trying to raise money, and I rake in the interest over there, and I use some of that to repay my loan in yen,、mm-hmm. and some of that I, I take to the store and I buy something with it. Yes, that's a very good theoretical description of it. So why should people care about yen carry trades? Because. This is one way to make money, but it's a, a risky. It, it works in certain environments and not in others. So, in, in an environment where there's a lot of liquidity, and also where there's a lot of the volatility in a currency market is lower, and that means that, for example, in this case, Australian dollars valued against Japanese yen, say that just stayed at one. Okay. That's very low volatility. That's no volatility. In which case, they're equal. Right. Okay. One for one, they stay that way for the entire year. You make your, you earn that interest. But what's happening to currencies now? We we do not have a liquid environment, and we do not have a low volatility environment at all. So your workplace is a mess. <laughs> we have an environment where people are worried about risk, where people are pulling back their exposures. Where they're cutting positions that might have been making them money, which might have been a carry trade, so that's going on at the same time.、Uh, so, so one, it's harder to borrow. Two, the, there's a huge.、Um, the, there's always been a currency risk, but it's really obvious that there's a currency risk now. And that, what is that risk? That risk is, and always has been for the carry trade, that that one for one ratio. Of Australian dollars to、uh, the Japanese yen, that that it could move all over the place, and it it could move more than the eight percent interest that you're earning. So our currency is moving all over the place. Yes. Meg Brown, she's a currency strategist for Brown Brothers Harriman in New York, and she says that it really is possible to understand the currency markets, and that she is living proof. So right now, Meg Brown, I'm putting my faith in you. I'm going to keep asking questions until I understand it, because currency is one of the hardest things I've encountered since I started working on this show. It may actually be harder than credit default swaps. Anyway, Brown also told us some things about gold. And what's happening with the price of that? We'll be putting that on our blog later this week. She also explained what's happening to the Canadian dollar. We've been getting a lot of letters from listeners about that. For now, that's a podcast. 
Thanks for hanging around the block. We love that. We're at npr.org slash money. I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. <laughs>